Welcome to The Last Word on the Crosstalk Messages podcast. Every week we take a last look at the message from the most recent Crosstalk. Enjoy this short conversation and stay tuned for the full message directly after. Hello, welcome to The Last Word. My name is Johnny and I'm joined here today with JD. It's good to be here this morning. And Cameron. That's me, Cameron. Hello, guys. <laughs> hey. Hello. We just got back from camping. How are y'all feeling? I'm feeling good. I didn't get sunburned. I didn't sleep as much as I wanted to, but that's mm-hmm. like kind of a given on those trips. We just uh-huh. stay up late and hang out. And volleyball on Saturday night was, was really, so really fun. fun. Yeah. 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 I was determined to spike a ball on Saturday night when we played volleyball, and that just didn't happen. But I woke up the next morning and my torso was sore from trying to like stretch my 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 body to be so much. Tall enough. To yeah. be tall. And yeah. I just wasn't, which was sad. <laughs> but I had a great time this yeah. weekend. I oddly slept really well on Friday night. Like did not wake up once. Slept so, so well. Saturday night, not so much. Don't know why. Right. Yeah. But Saturday night or Friday night, I had the sleep of my life. It was so much fun. And I just love Camp Eagle. I love being outside. Yeah. Loved being in the community. It was a great yeah. weekend. Yeah, I loved all the climbing that we got to oh, do. Oh, yeah. I was so sore yesterday. That yeah, was... the combination of hiking and <laughs> climbing and then sleeping on the ground is always a recipe for your body to hurt for yeah. a couple of days. I also fell asleep on my roommate's floor on Thursday night, um, and I was like, why did I do this to myself? Because I'm oh. going to be sleeping on the, the ground yeah. for the yeah. next two nights as well. Absolutely. Did it to myself. <laughs> well... That is awesome. It was a great weekend, but we're hopping right back into it, talking about JD on Thursday. He talked over a lot of Mark 13, which was a really, really cool passage. Um, And something very unique in it is that you got to talk a lot more about prophecy and what it means and the difference between like what we might think prophecy means to what it actually does mean. And so something I wanted to touch on is something that a lot of us college students have to face in college specifically when it comes to this topic. So is prophecy still something that's really prevalent today? And how should we respond to someone when they tell us that they have the gift of prophecy? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. I think that um, prophecy, well, there are varying views on this. My my take is that uh, prophecy is one of the gifts of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. And that means that if the Spirit is still working and active in the world, which we believe that it is, then we will see the gift of prophecy also uh, at work in the world. And that is not a negative thing. It's not something to be afraid of, but it is something to be really, really discerning Mm -hmm. about. Now, we can look in the scriptures, and we believe that the scriptures are God-breathed, mm-hmm. and that uh, God speaks to us through mm-hmm. them to uh, uh, reflect on past events and also to speak into our modern context. And prophecy is a part of the biblical literature, mm-hmm. and so we have to. Uh, we can look at that prophecy and say, "Of course, that's God ordained because it's in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. It's of the Lord." Now, in today's context, it's important that we do have discernment when it comes to. Uh, people who might approach us and say, I have a prophetic word for you, or God has given me something that I feel like I'm supposed to share with you. Um, The first question that I always ask when it comes to prophecy is, have you prayed about it? Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes we can really feel like uh, maybe the Lord has given us something, but it's really important for us to take a step back and say, like, God, is this from you? Mm -hmm. God, is this something that you have given me? And we have to be really careful in how we share that then. And so if somebody says, I I haven't prayed about it, I feel like the Lord just gave it to me right now, then maybe our response is to say, how about you take some time Mm 
go pray about it. And you still, if you still feel mm-hmm. conviction that this is from uh, the Lord, then please share it with me. The second piece is how we receive that. If somebody says that I've prayed about it, it's somebody that we really trust. We trust mm-hmm. their uh, wisdom. We trust their discernment. Then we hear that word, that prophetic word that has been given to us. And then it's our job to pray about it yeah. and say, Lord, uh, not only this person feels like this is from you, but is this a word that you have for me? Mm-hmm. And the Lord will lead us into truth in terms of our understanding of what that word is supposed to mean for our life. And sometimes uh, you can ask several people who we work with here at the church, people have shared stuff with us and you mm-hmm. say, you know what? I, I really don't feel like the Lord is telling me that this is a prophetic word for me. And so we can leave that. We mm-hmm. can let that go. Or you could say, wow, that is a really good word. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to continue to to trust that. I'm going to continue to hold on to what I feel like the Lord is showing me or promising me through this. And it, it can be really formational for our lives. Does that make sense? Yeah. Kind of our approach and how we how we receive yeah. prophecy? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I talked about this with you guys last week on Tuesday when we were getting ready for the message. I think when I hear the word prophecy, like a part of me gets a little bit squeamish and a little bit nervous just because of how much it's like almost like a hot button word and, um, how much it's used and kind of thrown around in modern Christianity. Um, but something that I remember is one, like the Bible and scripture is the ultimate authoritative word of God and the ultimate authoritative prophecy. And so when in doubt, when all else, like go back to scripture and you can count like what JD was saying, you can count on the fact that this is 100% authoritative and this is where we stake our life on, you know, like all these other things we can test it, but this is ultimately what it goes back to. And then second, um, yeah, I mean, I just want to echo what JD was saying, because especially coming to college, um, I had some people tell me some like prophetic things, like, and what they had felt God had put on their heart for me. And it was when I was trying out different churches and everything too. But I mean, as a college freshman, I was like, what do I do with this information? <laughs> like yeah. do, and it's pe- people I just met who I don't know. Um, but people coming up to me and saying like, I feel like God told me this about you. And like, I feel like this and this, and a lot of it was encouraging to me at the time, but I, I'm so thankful that God gave me the discernment to know like, okay, I need to pray about this and I need to see. And some of them I didn't take with me and some of them I yeah. walked away mm-hmm. from. And yeah. there was nothing wrong with that. And um, I think continuing not only to pray for when you receive those, but also praying for the people who maybe do have that gift as well, because I do believe that that does happen and that God does give people prophetic words for specific things. Um, but I think the biggest threat to the church and like our gifts can be prayerlessness. And so just remembering to always go back to prayer for the person, for mm-hmm. yourself, for the prophecy or like for whatever mm-hmm. is laid in front of the table in front of you. I feel like that's something we always need to go back to. Absolutely. And I think you bring up a really good point, which is all of those things need to be tested against scripture. Yeah. If there are things inside of that prophetic word that are contradictory to scripture, then that is not of the Lord. That's a really clear marker for us. If this is antithetical to what scripture tells me, then you know what? I'm going to leave that because God's word is ultimately our authority for understanding his work in the world. 
right? And prophecy is never something that we need to like scramble up or try to conjure like on our own. Right. And I think that's a red flag you can look for in your brain or yeah. somebody's telling you like, God, I like, I just, I, I conjured this up. Like we don't conjure things up. Like God is the one who gives and he's the one who freely bestows like if he chooses to. Um, and so looking out for that in, in, in our minds, and I think it can become easy to think like, oh, this is going to make me look good or like this is going to be a good show. Um, but remembering, you know, we're not the conjurers. Like God is the one who bestows it and testing it with scripture when he does choose to do that. Yeah. That was all very well said. And JD, I love how you always talk about the pendulum with issues mm-hmm. like this, where it's like you swing one way where it's like, no, prophecy is not a thing. I don't mm-hmm. believe in it. It doesn't happen right. to another way where it's like, everyone can have prophecies all the time, no matter what. Mm-hmm. And I love like y'all's viewpoints, what you just talked about, how like there's this middle ground of like biblical truth and you can put it through this filter of scripture and being like, how legitimate is this? And let's mm-hmm. be weary of it, but it's yeah. still a thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really good. So yeah, Jesus kind of gives these like prophecies, these instructions. And then in Mark 13, uh, 9 to 11, it's just this beautiful scripture of Jesus is like telling his disciples to be on their guard as they'll essentially be delivered into councils, kings, being in mm-hmm. synagogues, all to share the gospel. And the Holy Spirit will help them, you know, know what to say in those moments. Now, this mm-hmm. is like really awesome. But I think as someone in college, how is it how are we able to apply this today? Because, you know, we're not going to be what we think as standing before kings and using that moment to share the gospel. Mm-hmm. But how can we really apply this to our situations today as college students? Absolutely. I don't think we need to uh, invent some persecution complex where <laughs> we are uh, persecuted for our faith. We live in a country where we have freedom of speech, and we have the ability to express our religious viewpoints. And that is something that is a really beautiful gift. And so, okay, we need to contextualize this scripture. Okay, let's think about uh, there might be a moment in class where somebody is speaking about the Christian faith in a way that might be denigrating, or there might be an opportunity in our friend group or with our coworkers or in these different situations where we have an opportunity to speak into the truth, the good news that is the gospel. And here Jesus says, be on your guard. In other words, be ready, be prepared, be willing when those opportunities arise Mm -hmm. to take a step out in faith Mm -hmm. and to begin to speak into uh, those situations with grace and truth. The beautiful part about all of that is that, golly, Jesus says, don't be anxious. Mm -hmm. Don't be anxious beforehand about what we're to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, Mm -hmm. but the Holy Spirit. And so it can be really intimidating for us to uh, take a step out, to be a little courageous and bold Mm -hmm. in those circumstances where we know we have an opportunity. And I got to tell you, I have screwed that up a lot of times in my life Mm -hmm. where I can feel the Holy Spirit compelling me to speak, and yet I just am unwilling. I'm unwilling. I'm too afraid. I'm too sensitive to my people-pleasing self. And so I don't speak up. I don't speak out about what I feel like the Lord is calling me to say in those circumstances. And here Jesus says, go for it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. go for it because the Holy Spirit is going to give you the words to speak in those circumstances. And that gives us an abiding peace that it's not our own knowledge base. It's not about being good enough. It's not about knowing enough. It's not about being prepared enough or having been a Christian for so X amount of years first. But simply Jesus calling us 
to preach the gospel, mm-hmm. to to be bold in doing that, trusting that he is the one who ultimately equips us in those circumstances. Yeah. And um, as someone who just came out of college at Texas State, um, I had so many experiences like this, yeah. so, so many. Um, one where I felt God calling me to say something or do something, but I was too afraid. But also in those moments, um, I had some really cool moments where thankfully like the Lord allowed me to, to have those moments and to, and to listen to the spirit and some, and some cool things. Um, but I remember this one time actually where I was going to get a smoothie bowl between classes because I had time and I was so excited for my smoothie bowl. Sounds good. I know it was so good. And, um, there was somebody speaking on, um, just like the Bible and like Christian beliefs and everything and a big crowd had gathered around him and I just felt compelled to stay. And I was like, but I want my smoothie bowl. Like I literally started having a conversation with the Lord. I was like, but I want my smoothie bowl. Um, but I just, my heart started beating so quickly and I just knew that the Lord was calling me to stay there for a second. I didn't know why and I didn't know for how long, but I I sat there, I listened, I didn't speak like once the entire time I just observed because that's just what I felt the Lord calling me to do was just observe and listen. And so after that, there were these people that I felt like the Lord had been highlighting during it. These people who um, had a lot of questions and who like didn't really understand Christianity. And so I just felt like I needed to go tell them like, Hey, like I'm so glad that like I got to hear what you had to say today Mm -hmm. and just wanted you to know that like, like the Lord loves you. And like, I am so sorry that you had negative experiences with the church. And that's, I just felt like I needed to go tell that to them. And so afterwards I stayed there, ended up for like a whole class period, like an hour and 20 minutes. I didn't leave. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, and I went and talked to them and I just, I was nervous because yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. you know, my flesh does not want to do this. Like, this is not something I want to do right now. It's uncomfortable. But I just went up to them and I f- said what I felt like the Lord needed me to say. And, you know, I don't know if they received it well. Like, I don't know if they walked away and were like, well, yeah. what, how stupid of like that? You know, I, I have no idea, but I just know that in that moment, I'm so thankful that the Lord compelled me to do it. And that's a moment that I can look back on mm-hmm. and that I can also pray for those people. Yeah. And I can walk away from interactions, whether they were good or bad. And I think it really just goes back to remembering, okay, God, like I'm not the one who makes the things grow. Like I'm not the one who brings solutions or creates things that are going to happen like you are. Yeah. Um, but just stepping out in obedience and in faith, trusting that the boldness of the gospel and like whatever whatever you're saying and like whatever the spirit is laying on your heart is, is going to be like, what is enough for that moment, whatever God has for you. And then to, I I guess I'm just going back to prayer because I'm just, I love prayer and like, I love what God does in it, but praying for those interactions when you walk away from them, going into them, during them and trusting that the spirit is going to give you the words to say and disregarding people's opinions of you because it's not about us in the first place. Right. right? Yeah. I was in, religious studies. And so I definitely had many, many conversations (laughs) where um, I was put on the chopping block. But Cam, I love that how you really got to apply just what you were just talking about, JD, in that, um, I believe, verse 11, where it's like, you know, the Spirit's going to give you the words to say. Mm -hmm. And how you were saying, like, you know, the flesh is weak, but the Spirit is willing. And you, like, listen to that and we're able to apply it. Um, And I don't know, that just just takes the pressure off, you know? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And so... Uh, JD, you gave us a little bit of an application actually, uh, near the end, um, of that we as Christians are called to walk into the mess. Like this is like, that was something that just really stuck out to me is that Mm -hmm. like compared to other people, we as Christians are called to walk into the mess. So, um, I want y'all, you could, um, try to, you know, take it whatever direction, but what encouragement would you give someone who's listening to this to be like, 
man, that's uncomfortable. Like that's not what's on my schedule. Like how Cam was saying, yeah, we want the yeah. smoothie bowl. Like <laughs> what is some really good encouragement that you can give someone that's listening to this to walk into the mess uh, in their day-to-day life as a Christian? Absolutely. Uh, the first basic truth of all of this is that life is messy. Yeah. That uh, if we are going to be in a relationship with other people, it's going to be messy because I'm messy and you're messy. And so together we're we're messy together. And uh, for me to take this and make this really, really practical, we have to look at our own life and say, when my life was the most messiest, people walked towards me. They walked into my mess. They, they were willing to wade through all of the junk that I had going on in my life. Mm-hmm. And they weren't inconvenienced by it, but they willingly gave uh, of their time, effort, energy, money to help me. Well, now the beautiful part is I get to pay that forward. And I get to say, I get to walk into the mess of other people's lives. And I get to be a part of what God wants to do in those spaces. And so for me, the reflection upon my own life is a powerful way in which I can then be encouraged to walk into other people's lives. Because Mm -hmm. if nobody did that for me, I wouldn't be sitting here today. Mm -hmm. If a guy named Dave Pound didn't walk towards the mess of me that I was when I was a freshman in college at Ohio State Mm -hmm. and just say, like, I'm willing to give of my time, effort, and energy to to see him come to know Jesus more, to fall more deeply in love with him, mm-hmm. golly, I would not be here today. Mm-hmm. And so I, I look back on a story of somebody like Dave or my friend Larry, and I say, those people were there. Mm-hmm. When life got really messy, they were there. And I now have an opportunity to do that same thing for other people. And so, again, it takes, uh, it, it's not like a have to. Yeah. It is a, it's a want to, and it's a desire to see other people come to live transformed lives. And the beautiful part is that God wants to use us as broken and sinful human beings to be a part of that work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, again, like we talked about uh, just a little bit ago about speaking into situations when it's hard and difficult and uncertain. Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit's going to empower us to do that. He's going to show us what it means to step into the into the the stuff that's going on in other people's lives. And there are really powerful things in terms of setting boundaries and doing all of that so that we are taking care of ourselves in that space, but st- God calls us to walk towards that mess. I mean, you see in the person of Jesus that God broke into time and space, sending his one and only son into the midst of a broken and sinful humanity to offer a way back to a restored relationship with the Father. Mm -hmm. And we now follow Jesus's example in walking towards the mess as opposed to walking away from it. Mm -hmm. That's good. Goodness, yeah. I I think we have to remember that the beauty of the gospel is unveiled in the broken places. And Jesus says himself, like, he's not here for the healthy, like the doc, the, the sick are the ones who need the doctors, like the most lowly and the broken of places. That's where the gospel is required. Like that's yeah. where we're supposed to go into. And God walked towards me and like ha- came into my life at the most messy and broken time ever. And it says in Matthew, I can't think of the verse right now, but just as freely as you received, freely give. Mm-hmm. And like, how beautiful that we got to receive the beauty of the gospel mm-hmm. in this great big broken world when we didn't deserve it and when we were the least deserving of God's goodness and God's love and kindness. And now we get to go into these places that God get himself, his spirit gives us the discernment to see, first of all, like what a gift 
at all that we get to have new eyes and like fresh vision and that mm. our eyes are, are open to like all the brokenness in the world. But not only do we get to open it, open our eyes and see, but now our, our, our duty is to go into those places and to walk into them, not to just look at them and not just to say, Oh, that's so sad, but to go into those broken places. And again, trusting that the pressure is off. We're just going where God leads us. And you know, we're not the fixers like of the world, like God is like, he is the ruler of it. He's the ordainer. He's the sustainer, but we get to be part of that mission. And it becomes such a joy when you see it, not only as a have to, but also as a, you know, like I'm not the one running the world either, (laughs) you know? Um, but just remembering God came and broke into my brokenness. And now what a joy that I get the eyes to see the brokenness in the world in a different view. And that I get to walk into those places and that I get to proclaim the love of Jesus for the glory of God. So good. Yep. So I hope everyone listening is encouraged to find the mess and to sprint into it as a Christian, um, and shine lights, Christ's light in it. Um, well, JD, we got what two more crosstalks this two semester. More. What yeah. do you got for us to have the second to last one? Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> we are kind of entering into the last three chapters of the book of Mark, and the last three chapters are all about the last days of Jesus's life. So we'll we'll look at the story of the Last Supper. We're going to look at the story of Jesus's trial, his crucifixion, and ultimately his death and resurrection. And so um, I'm excited to, as we close out the semester, really. Uh, get into the heart of the gospel message. We've we've spent this entire semester looking at who Jesus is and what he came to do, and now we get to see what he came to do and the fruition of God's plan to, for the redemption of all humankind. So that's really exciting stuff. I'm looking forward to closing out the semester with you guys, and we will see you on Thursday. a seat. My name is JD. I have the honor and the privilege of being the pastor of this community that we call Crosstalk. And I, I, I had the chance this past week, I was having lunch with a guy and he asked me uh, about my story. Kind of how did I end up here? What is my story of faith? And I got to reflect on a season of my life that I look back on now and I kind of have a hard time remembering or believing that it was real. I had the opportunity uh, when I was early out of college to be a backpacking, whitewater rafting, and climbing guide. And essentially, if you guys aren't familiar with the guiding industry, what happens is we, or I would accumulate a set of skills and certifications, and then we would have clients who would pay us to take them on trips. And so for me, it was the greatest job in the world because I got paid to do the stuff that I already wanted to go do. And instead, I wasn't having to spend my own money. But when I was guiding backpacking or paddling trips, one of my favorite parts, uh, really, there were my two favorite parts. First of which was taking someplace that they'd never, taking someone to a place they'd never been before. Showing them someplace that was completely new and different than anything they'd ever seen. And the second was watching them do something for the very first time. Watching somebody go backpacking, watching somebody go climbing, watching somebody paddle the river for the very, very first time. Being with them in those moments where they see or do something for the very first time is remarkable because you see a lot of things happen to people in those moments. Some of those are really amazing. You'll see a lot of growth in character, in in who they are as people. You'll see them develop uh, competency 
They'll begin to believe in themselves. They'll, they'll begin to have confidence that they can do things they never thought that they could do. And you're present for some really impactful moments where they realize uh, the grand scheme of who they are in all of creation. But the opposite is also true. Doing new things and being in new places also brings out a lot of our insecurities when we're into those spaces. It takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of practice in a lot of these circumstances to feel comfortable in them. And so you see a lot of fear. You see a lot of anxiety. You see a lot of self-doubt come up in those moments. And out of those insecure feelings, one of the questions that I was regularly asked was how much farther? How much farther? Or uh, how many more miles am I going to have to do this? Now, we would have been hiking or paddling all day. It's late in the afternoon, and they're just wondering how much farther? How long do I have to keep doing this? And this is actually one of my favorite questions that I got asked, because uh, there's something underneath the obvious question that's being asked. When they ask how much farther, what they're really questioning is, am I up to it? Am I capable enough? Am I, can I do it? Do you believe in me? And so the answer to that question has the, the, the ability to empower somebody to do something that they did not think that they could do. Now, it might seem a little weird that I would enjoy being asked that question because this is the equivalent of every parent's least favorite question. Are we there yet, right? And I had my own stock answer that I would answer everybody. When they asked me how much farther, I had my own answer that I would say every single time. I would say, oh, a mile, mile and a half. Could have been a half a mile. It could have been 10 miles. My answer was always, oh, mile, mile and a half, something like that. And uh, there, beyond the fact that I get a decent amount of joy out of saying something like that to people, there is a very specific reason that I began to say that. Um, if I were to say a, a given amount of time, say that it's going to take us an hour to get to wherever we're going, and then we don't get there in that amount of time, then I'm creating discouragement and I'm encouraging people to give up. Because if I state a time that it takes to do something, time is really relative to how much effort you're willing to put into going someplace. Now, uh, I might say on the front end, it's gonna take us an hour, and in the opposite, they might just get discouraged right then and there. They might quit before they even start because they don't feel like they're capable of that. Or oftentimes what I would have in the back of my mind is I knew where we were going well enough that I had a couple of spots that I might wanna stop and show them. I might wanna take a break at this really cool spot. I might wanna show them something to surprise them with something, to give, to give it to them as a gift. Now, if something comes up, say our group gets separated, the weather gets bad, and we don't get to do that, if I've promised them that, then I've created this unrealistic expectation and I've broken their trust in the process. And so the key for me was finding a way to phrase something that motivated and empowered people to keep going, to do things that they felt like they might not be able to do. And the reality is, most people have no ability to conceptualize distance. People have no idea in their head how far a mile or a mile and a half actually is. And so to them, if you tell them it's a mile and a half, 
it could be 10 miles and they're going to fully believe that this is a mile and a half because they don't know. When you're doing stuff like that, you have no idea how to conceptualize distance. And so this, my answer to this question satisfies their curiosity and gives them hope that they can actually persevere and do it. Because when you tell somebody, oh, it's a mile, mile and a half, it doesn't seem that far. Everybody believes, well, I could go one more mile. Like, I could do that for, for one more mile. And the added plus is I would get a really good laugh out of it, knowing we had 10 miles left, and I'm telling them it's going to be a mile, mile and a half until we're done for the day. Now, those of you guys uh, might be familiar, or, or maybe even worked out at Camp Eagle this past summer, it's a place that I worked in the past. Now, Camp Eagle doesn't say when you ask them how far. They don't tell you a, a distance like I do. They had their own stock saying, and it was, it's really cheesy, but it, it actually really works. They would say WAFO. And it it's an acronym. It stands for wait and find out. Wait and find out. So wait, how far do we have to go? Wait and find out. What are we doing next? Wait and find out. And their reasons are very much the same. Weather might change. You might have to, uh, so you can't do something. If you promise somebody that this is what we're going to do next, then they're either so excited or so afraid of what you're doing next that they're not present in the given moment. They're not paying attention to what's happening. And this wait and find out concept, or mile, mile and a half concept, whatever works in the way that you guys uh, imagine things, is really applicable to a lot of different aspects of our life. Life can be hard, and life can feel incredibly uncertain, especially when we look into the future and we're, and we're trying to answer some of life's biggest questions. We've all been in these situations in our lives where we feel insecure about the future. And internally, we're asking ourselves the question, can I do it? How long do I have to go through this? How is this actually going to turn out? Is it going to work out for me? And this could be in our, some of our personal relationships. It could be dating relationships. It could be family. It could be friendships. It could be in workplace relationships with your boss. How long do I have to work for this person who I feel like isn't treating me fairly? Or a school semester where you just feel completely overloaded and overwhelmed by all the stuff you have to get done, or even a sickness or chronic pain. And the reality is we all want to know ultimately how things are going to turn out in our life. We all want the answer to that because we are wired for comfort and security. We want to know the end Result, And so we desperately claw and fight for control over our lives, looking to manage this little life of mine. And Jesus today really wants to teach us that when we become so fixated on the end result, that we miss what God has for us in the here and now. God wants to do something in our lives in the present moment. He wants to teach us something. He wants to show us what it means to faithfully follow him and to trust that he is ultimately going to take care of the future, that we don't have to worry about all of that. So Jesus today wants to give us guidance on how to endure uncertain circumstances. He wants to give us a hope in a future, and he wants to teach us where our focus should be 
and how we can ultimately give up control of trying to know the future, of trying to, to make it happen on our own, instead resting in, a, in an eternal hope that he promises us. Now, we're going to be in Mark chapter 13, and this chapter of Mark contains... Uh, Mark's longest speech of Jesus outside of his treatment of the parables in Mark chapter 4. Now, just the length of Jesus' words tells us in the grand scheme of Mark that this is something important. And this conversation between Jesus and his disciples shifts the conversation from the actions of Jesus and instead points to Jesus' death and beyond into the end time. And so there's a dramatic shift from the present moment to the future here. Now, the conversation that we're going to read today is prophecy. It's prophetic literature. And for us to do that, it's really, really important for us to understand what prophecy is and what prophecy isn't. Now, as modern readers, we really tend to have a difficulty with prophecy, because we tend to think of them solely as predicting the future. Think about it. We, we hire newscasters, we hire sports commentators, precisely because we want certainty about what is going to happen. So a world event happens, and we hire somebody to come up on the news and tell us what that's going to mean for our future. They're trying to predict the future, in the same way that we all tune into ESPN on Saturday morning before college football starts because we love to watch four old dudes try to tell us what's going to happen in like 36 games in a given day. We're fascinated with it. We want to know definitively what the future will hold. But biblical prophecy provides a different framework for statements about the future. They're ultimately a diagnosis of a, of a moral or spiritual problem within the people of God. It's a diagnosis of the moral or spiritual health of the people. And so a prophetic word of judgment, for example, is intended to promote repentance and change. It's intended to promote people returning to God, even though many of the people reject the prophet's word. And so judgment and destruction only occur because the prophet's words of warning go unheeded by the people they're addressed to. We can think about it in this way. Prophetic speech is meant to be instruction for the reader and the hearer. It's not meant to be fortune-telling. And so when we read the words of Jesus here in this chapter, we have to keep in mind that Jesus is wanting to teach us something. He wants to instruct us with how to live, not just tell us what's going to happen in the future. Okay, let's hop into it. We're going to be in Mark 13. We're going to start in verse 1. It says that as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to them, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, have you guys ever been to a city or seen a building that took your breath away? Been to a place like that? The first one that I can remember, uh, does anybody know Frank Lloyd Wright, the architect? Okay, a couple of people. That's great. He has this, uh, I thought that that would only land for people who grew up in the Midwest because we would take school field trips to go see Falling Water, which is this like remarkable, marvelous architectural wonder 
of a home in Pennsylvania. And every kid in Ohio goes to visit Falling Water, and I remember walking into it and just being blown away by it for the first time. I'd never seen a house that looks like this. Now, years ago, I was on a trip, and I was out in Sedona, Arizona, and I just had some time to kill. And I went out, and it's, uh, what is it called? It's the Chapel of the Holy Cross in Sedona. I know, Kathleen, you have been out there. You and I have talked about it. You've been out there as well. It's this magnificent church. There's just this high, beautiful red sandstone cliff, and nestled into the cliff is this church. It's a remarkable place to go and visit. But the, the, the place that this rings the most true for me was the first time I went to New York City. I don't know how, about, how many of you guys have been to New York City, but you like get out of, for me, it was getting out of the train, coming in from Newark, New Jersey, getting out onto the sidewalk and being like, I am the smallest thing in the entire world. Like the buildings are so big around me and there are a million people within a square mile of me. It was remarkable. It took my breath away for the very first time. And this is the sort of reaction that the disciples are having right now. They're, they're exiting the temple courtyards and they're looking around and they're looking at the grandeur of all of these buildings. And they say, have you ever seen anything so marvelous? And Jesus enters into this situation and he's like, see all of those beautiful things? Not one stone will be left unturned. Not one stone will be left unturned. Now, about 30-ish to 35 years after Jesus' death, we're told that the Jewish, well, history tells us that the Jewish people revolted against Roman rule. That they finally rebelled against having a Roman authority over uh, Israel. And so this turned into what amounted to a a seven-year war where Rome reacts to this rebellion and they march their army over and they just start to fight with the Jewish people. And this culminates when the future emperor Titus marches outside of the city of Jerusalem with the Roman army and he besieges the city. And in 70 AD, where uh, our historical sources tell us that he makes his way into the city and that he burns and he destroys the temple. He burns and he destroys the temple in 70 AD. Now, why is this historical fact important? Because many of the rest of the words of Jesus in this passage are about the end times, what will come at the end. And so the certainty with which Jesus foresaw events that we know took place, like the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, should encourage us as readers to have confidence in his words about the future. When they seem uncertain, when we don't understand, we can trust in the words of Jesus that they will come to pass. We're going to pick it back up in verse 3. And it says, And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. But these are the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. 
And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the, fa- and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So Jesus here warns the disciples, predicting that Jerusalem and its temple will be destroyed within a generation. And so Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they pull Jesus aside into private, and they're like, tell me, when is it going to happen? Because probably I don't want to be here when it happens. So I'm going to make sure I'm as far out. So just tell me, like, when is this going to take place? And instead of Jesus giving them a date, telling them when it's going to happen, he instead issues a warning. He shares with them about the social and political upheaval uh, that would take place in Judea during this war. But the disciples were not supposed to be led astray because Jesus tells us this is not the end. He tells them this is not the end. But in addition to this, Jesus also warns his disciples that they will be persecuted in the same way that he is persecuted. So what Jesus is trying to do here is he's trying to teach the disciples how they are to conduct themselves in the midst of persecution and political turmoil. And his first command, be on your guard. Be on your guard. Well, what does that mean? Let's think about this in terms of military language. To be on your guard means to be ready, to be prepared, to be on the front foot to react when something happens to us. And the disciples then, he says, they must be on their guard. They must be ready so that when trials and persecution comes, they will be ready to testify. They will be ready to witness to the truth of the gospel. The disciples must be willing to testify to the truth of the gospel even though they will be persecuted. Jesus says that the gospel message first must be proclaimed to all nations. So the message of Jesus here is clear. The disciples' task is to preach the gospel. With all of the noise that's happening around them, their task is to preach the gospel. And when they're questioned for doing such, they're not supposed to be anxious because Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will empower them with the words to say in those circumstances. And this is a powerful word for us today in our modern context. Our tendency is to get distracted and pulled away by all of the things that are happening in the world. The turmoil of the world, the way that we're treated as followers of Jesus. And so the the message of Jesus cuts through all of the noise here. Be on your guard. Be ready. So that when we're questioned, we're able to testify and to witness to the truth of the gospel message that we know. And we do this knowing and trusting that the Holy Spirit is at work within us and that he's going to ultimately give us the words to speak. When we don't feel good enough, when we don't feel smart enough, when we feel like we're still struggling too much, but the person in front of us asks us about our faith, we trust that the Holy Spirit leads us with the words to say in those circumstances. It goes on. We're going to skip down into verse 24. 
But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling down from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. The words of Jesus about trials and tribulation and social upheaval and political strife are really, really heavy. They are, for me at least. I guess I won't project that on you. But for me, they're heavy. And it's even heavier when, when we've realized that our task, the thing that Jesus calls us to do, is in the midst of that heaviness to actually walk towards it. To witness to the truth of the gospel in the midst of that heaviness and the darkness and the turmoil that is everyday life. Life is messy. And as Christians, we're called to walk towards the mess and not away from the mess. And so that can be a heavy thing for us. But here, Jesus gives us a hope. And it's, an, and it's an eternal hope that's not based on our circumstances right here. Here Jesus is saying that one day he will return to bring God's kingdom fully over all the earth. And this statement of Jesus directs us from our present circumstance towards a hope for the future. Towards a hope for the future that is certain. These prophetic words formulate a message of hope which is meant to encourage the disciples to endure the hardships of testimony to the gospel message. And Jesus tells us that those who do so, those who persevere, will be counted among his elect, the people of God. And these words have still not come to fulfillment today, so they continue to provide hope into our lives. Jesus hasn't come again. And so we're called to endure the hardships of a life lived for the gospel. And this can be hard. It can feel lonely. It can feel uh, isolating. It can feel like we're just spinning our wheels and going nowhere. But when it feels like that, in our most hopeless, we cling to the hope that when Jesus comes again, he will restore all things, and he will gather us into the people of God. It goes on in verse 32, and it says, but concerning that day or that hour, and here he's speaking about the day in which he will return again, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Stay awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. And when he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and you, and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. It's natural it's incredibly natural for us to ask the question that the disciples asked. When is this going to take place? How far away are we? Uh, are we there yet? And here Jesus makes clear that no one knows the date or the time but the Father. Nobody knows the date or the time but the Father. And he concludes with this parable concerning a master and his servants. 
And parables, these stories that Jesus shares are really, really helpful for us because I don't know about you guys, but I can get kind of lost in words like this. When we're speaking about the future, when we're speaking in this prophetic, symbolic language, you can kind of get lost, and I'm like, what is the meaning of all of this? Well, this parable puts it in terms that we can understand. He says that servants know the task that has been entrusted to them, but they do not know when the master will return. Now, we have all had this experience in our life. I'll contextualize a little bit for us. This is like when we were kids, and uh, our mom was leaving, and she told us, you need a vacuum, you need to do the dishes, and your homework needs to be done by the time I get home. And then she walks out. You have no idea she's going to be gone an hour. She could be gone three hours. You have no clue. And so the question is, what do I do with my time? I know what my task is, and most of us gambled and lost, where we said, I'm going to sit around, I'm going to be a bum, and then I'm betting on her getting home three hours later, so at two and a half hours, I'm going to start to do all the stuff that I should have done early. And we got caught because she showed up in an hour and we were still sitting on the couch and we hadn't done anything. That's the situation right here. We know the servant knows the task that the master has given him, but does not know when he will return. In the same way, the only way to be certain of the master's praise is for the servant to be faithful to the task which he has been assigned. Faithful servants do not need to know when the master will return. I had uh, this youth pastor when I was growing up, and his favorite thing to say to us when I was like in high school, it's the only thing I remember him saying, funny enough. He told me that uh, stupid kids learn from their own mistakes, and smart kids learn from other people's mistakes. I always thought to myself, well, I kind of want to be a smart kid. So I started trying to pay attention to the things that are going on around me, and that's exactly what he's talking about here. He's saying... A faithful servant knows, I don't wait till the very end and try and get it all finished up and try and guess right on the timing. But they're faithful from the start to the task that they have been assigned. We only had to get in trouble once for not doing all the stuff our mom told us we needed to get done. And then we just started saying, I'll do that stuff first and then I can sit on the couch for two and a half hours. I'm just going to flip the order of operations here. Like the household servants and their master, Jesus tells us that we must be prepared for his return. His last two words in this chapter are stay awake. Be alert. Be on your guard. Be prepared. Be proactive, in other words. And this means actively cultivating a life that witnesses to who Jesus is. Preaching the gospel to all nations and trusting that Jesus is coming back. We don't need to know when that is because we're faithful to the things he's called us to right now in our lives. The death of Jesus on the cross that we celebrated uh, on Friday, with Good Friday, is not the end of the story of salvation. And here's what I mean by that. We live in a time of the already but not yet. Now, it's a a confusing way of saying things, so I'll, I'll explain it in this way. Jesus has already come. He has lived, he died, he rose, he ascended into heaven, and he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within us as our helper and as our guide and as our advocate. And as a result, we experience the kingdom of God here and now. And as followers of Jesus, we actively are taking part in the kingdom of God. Here and now. 
But we won't experience the fullness of the kingdom until Jesus comes again and he restores all things. So until the time when he comes again, we cling to the hope of the return of Jesus. When Jesus comes again, there will be no more pain. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more death. And sin will be no more. There will be peace and communion with God. And when our current circumstances are hard, this provides an anchor for our souls. It provides something for us to cling to when we have nothing else to cling to in our life. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, we shouldn't be so concerned with the return of Jesus, speculating and thinking about and planning on the return of Jesus that it distracts us from what God is calling us to do here and now, in the present moment. We so often think of the gospel of Jesus Christ as pertaining to our eternal destiny, where nothing else matters because I punched my ticket and that's it. And when we think this way, we're shortchanging the death of Christ in a dramatic way. But what Jesus says is that in the meantime, we have been called to something more than a spectator. Somebody patiently waiting, sitting on the sidelines, uh, just hoping for it to happen in front of our eyes. In fact, the only way we can truly live the kind of life that Jesus intended is to understand that the gospel is for our past, it's for our present, and it's for our future. And when we come to understand that concept, we stop being a spectator waiting for Jesus to come again, and we become a part of what God is doing here in the world. We become a part of what God is doing here in the world. He calls us to be faithful witnesses to the good news of the gospel message. And being a faithful Christian does not just magically happen overnight. It requires care and attention and cultivation. It it requires discipline and community and accountability in our lives. So let us be faithful in that work, recognizing that the gospel must first be preached to all nations, starting here on the campus of Texas State University. In our homes, in our community groups, in our apartment complexes, in our classrooms, on our teams, in our workplaces. It starts here and now. The beautiful part in all of this is that we're not alone in that. We have a helper alongside us. Jesus says that we're, that we're not to be anxious entering into those spaces about what we're going to say or how we're going to say it, but that the Holy Spirit will ultimately speak in and through us. And so we go boldly with confidence, knowing that God is faithful to use us to bring about his kingdom purposes here and now. We are called to engage in God's mission to the world, knowing that Jesus's return is assured. In major part, it's for this mission that the Holy Spirit was actually sent, which is a remarkable thing if you look at the book of Acts. And the point of this scripture is really a command. Don't just sit around waiting on Jesus to come back, but instead be ready, be on your guard so that we may share the good news of Jesus Christ when the opportunities present themselves. To share the story of what God did and is doing in the person 
of Jesus. The same message that Jesus had for the disciples is the same message that he has for us today. To be active in spreading the good news of the gospel to a hurting and broken and tumultuous world. So let's be the people of God who are equipped with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to go out with boldness and begin to share in all of the relationships that we're already in, in a new way. God, we thank you so much, Lord, that we do have a hope, Lord, that we do cling to the fact that you are coming again, Lord. We experience the brokenness and the hurt and the anguish of living in this world every day, and so we do cling to the promise that you are coming again and that you will make all things new, Lord, that you will redeem all things. But God, we don't want to be people who sit back and watch everything happen in front of us as casual observers, just trusting in that hope. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit, Lord, would empower us, that it would indwell us, God, that it would implore us to go out to speak the good news of your gospel to a hurting and broken broken community around us, Lord. We pray, God, that as, that as your Holy Spirit fills us, Lord, that you would give us new eyes and a new heart for the people that we see every day, Jesus, who do not know you. We pray this all in your name. Amen.